Nabby fans were going crazy, right? Uh, yeah, see, look, uh-huh, yeah, I knew that. So, you know, back in the, uh, back in the 90s, because I'm old, uh, there was this band that was, uh, I watched a couple times, watched them in a concert, and they had a dancer on the side. Uh, that's all the guy did, was he just kind of danced to their music, and he was part of the band. And so I was, I was thinking about Jordan's uh, encouragement and chastisement for us for not clapping. I think that we're going to have a position on the praise team as clapper clap leader so we have guitarist bass player clapper it'll be assigned and uh if you don't obey the clapper then you're you're out of luck i don't know i don't know what you are should have thought that through a little more before i started talking um man second service there you go so i get a little bit spent after first service you know you kind of expel all the energy and since so spend some time backstage praying they got to give you some grace for this. All right. Uh, if you have your Bible, 1 Kings chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. 1 Kings chapter 10 this morning. Um, I, I want to just be honest with you about some stuff. Well, I want to be honest with you about everything. I'm not going to lie to you this morning. This is my, my plan. Um, but preaching a narrative text is hard. A narrative, a narrative is a story text. And there's a large portion of the Bible that is, that is story. So it's a, a recounting of a, a story for us. Um, and, and we know that they're not merely there. God didn't merely give them to us for historical information or for our entertainment. There, there's a reason. There's a point. There's a, there's a, they're there for a purpose. Um, but so many times... I don't know about you, but I read them and I can understand what the story is saying, but I have that hard time figuring out kind of the so what question. Okay, so, so why did God put this in here? Why did God include this story in this way? Why did God do that? And, and I think this text is a good example. Uh, this week in our, our journey reading, our, the section that we're focusing on for this morning is the section from 1 Kings 1 through 1 Kings 10. And so it's really the story of the rise of Solomon to the throne of Israel. And so I'm reading this, I'm reading about Solomon taking the throne, and I'm reading about Solomon building the kingdom, and I'm reading about Solomon building the temple, and I see all of this stuff, and really kind of the question comes up, I was like, well, well what does that really mean for us? I mean, I'm not going to be ascending to a throne anytime that I'm aware of, and I don't know that anybody else in here is going to. I don't think any of us are building a temple. I don't really see us ruling a kingdom or all of these other things. We don't have to worry about the succession of a monarch. So the question then becomes like, like it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting story, but, but really why? why? Why does this story have something for us and, and does it? And, and I would say that it does. But the question I have then is if I struggle that way just in my personal reading time of this, how do you then preach it? Um, because you can, you can preach a narrative and not stay true to the text, and that's easy. You can just take words and then start talking about whatever you want to talk about. But if I want to preach it and stay true to what the text is saying, that becomes a little more difficult with a, with a story, with a narrative. And so as I, as I struggled with that this week and was really wrestling through where do we go, what do we talk about, God, what do you want for me and for Remedy, the question that I keep coming back to is, is a question that I, that I learned uh, a long time ago to ask. It's a really good question. And the question is this, what is the inspired author trying to tell me? Because the fact of the matter is, this is a text and it was written by an author who was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And as he's writing, we don't have every single little detail of Solomon's life. 
But we have certain important details that God saw fit that we should have them and read them and understand them for a purpose. So why did the author put this story and not this story? Why did the author put this detail but not include these details? These details. And our, our job is not to try to, as one of my professors used to say, use the text like a window to look behind it and try to figure all these things out. Our job is to look at what did the author write for us and why did he write it that way? What does he want us to know? Because we believe this is not just a man who wrote this. This is God the Holy Spirit has inspired somebody and made sure that they wrote exactly what we need. So that's the question that I kind of kept coming back to. Um, and so we have to remember that this isn't merely a recording of historical fact. It is history and it is fact, but there's a purpose to it. So this morning what we're going to do is we will spend time in a, a, a portion of First Kings 10. But a lot of what we'll do is really kind of give the big overview and help us to see something that's really important. And the really important thing is these narratives, these stories, these accounts that are given for us are not merely isolated accounts that we just kind of grab out of the Bible and pull them over here to the side and look at them for what they're worth and then come back and put it back and then grab the next one and just look at it in isolation. Because when we do that, we miss the, really the point of all of it. We, we can learn some things that way, and they're, they're good things, and they're God things, and they're, they're, they're good for us. But the point of all of this is not merely to see these isolated texts just that are, that are in and of themselves, but to see how this text fits within the context of the following chapters, of the context of this book, of the context of this big narrative, of ultimately the big picture of God's working in the world. And ultimately what we see is that all of the Bible is meant to point us to Jesus in one way or another. And so what I want to do is I want us, we're going to focus on a text, but we're going to start on a really big view. And I hope that this morning what we'll see is how all of this is interwoven, interconnected into this beautiful, fascinating web of how God has given us this word. And as we do this, it'll help us better understand how we read passages like this and study passages like this in the future. So I can't do that on my own, so we really need to pray. So if you will, join me while I pray. Father, thank you for this word. I thank you for what you've given us here in these chapters in the life of Solomon. I thank you for the way that you ensure that we would have this and nothing more and nothing less, that we have this and so that we see it and we can study it. And I thank you, Lord, that as we study the same Holy Spirit who inspired these scriptures is the Holy Spirit who fills and indwells our hearts and opens our minds to the truth. And so, Father, we pray this morning that what we seek and what we see and what we find would be of the Spirit and not of our own making, not of our own design, that we wouldn't twist or bend scriptures or find things that aren't really there, but that, God, we would see how you have worked all this together, that we would see the message of what you have are before us, what you want to teach us, and we would receive that. And out of that, we would see how our lives might be different because of what you're trying to tell us. So, Lord, we pray that you would take this and do even that this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So, what we have to do before we can get into 1 Kings is we've actually got to jump back into 2 Samuel. 
Because we can't understand what the author wants us to know in 1 Kings 1 through 10 unless we're familiar with another passage in 2 Samuel 7. Because it's written in such a way that the author expects us already to have this on our mind and have this knowing what's going forward. And hopefully that'll become a little more clear as we go through the 2 Samuel 7 passage. So if you will, just go back one book, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, here's what's going on. Um, you may be familiar with a guy named David. You may know a whole lot about him. You may not know anything about him. You may have just heard his name before. David was the king of Israel. He was a man, the Bible says, a man after God's own heart. He was the one who came in and led the nation in such a way that he ultimately fulfilled what Joshua and the people were supposed to do when they came and conquered the land of Israel. If you'll remember, when they came and conquered the land of Israel, they were supposed to drive out all of the enemies and they were supposed to set up the right boundaries. Well, they didn't fulfill all of that. And when David become king, he ultimately makes that happen. David is a warrior. David is a guy who just goes out and he fights the battles that God tells him to do. He does what God tells him to do. And so he's gone out and he's established this kingdom and he is he has done the things that God wants him to do his heart is towards God he's leading the people to worship God he's leading them away from false idols there's so much about David's life is you just think David is the best king there could ever be and then David is sitting in his palace one day and he begins thinking that he's in a beautiful palace and the ark of God where people go to worship and to offer sacrifices is in a tent. And he says, that's not right. And what we find in 2 Samuel 7 is what happens after that. So let's read. We're going to do 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 15. It's kind of a lengthy passage, but we've got to get this so that we understand everything. 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 1. Now when the king, that's David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the Lord, the ark of God, dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So God, David comes up and he says he wants to build this house. He wants to build a temple. He wants to build a house for God. And Nathan, knowing that God, David is a man after God's own heart, knowing that David is a good king, he, Nathan the prophet says, man, that sounds great. God is with you. Do what's in your heart. Nathan goes home and God shows up to Nathan. He's like, hey, I got a message for you to get to David. Kind of the paraphrase is, did I ask you to build me a temple? He said, no, I, I've done what I've wanted to do this entire time. And I, I've purposely not told anybody to build me a temple. In fact, I was the one who said how you should build a tent and where the tent's going to be. And people are doing just right. I'm okay in a tent. But David, let me tell you something. I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to do great things for you. Your name is going to be one of the greatest names over all the earth. Your family it's going to be built up into a house. You see, God plays on words here. You want to build me a house? Well, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And the understanding of house here, we know that it's not merely that David's going to have a four-story mansion with a swimming pool and a bowling alley and a movie theater. That's not what God's going for. David's already got a physical house. But what God is doing is he's taking this word. It's used both ways. He says, you're not going to build me a physical dwelling, David. I'm going to build you a family a descendant, and you're going to have an offspring that's going to come after you, and his kingdom is going to be greater than yours. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me, and his throne is going to last forever. Notice the play there. After you die, I'm going to raise up one of your offsprings, and his throne is going to last forever. This is one of the biggest, most amazing promises in all the Old Testament. Right up there with Genesis 12 and God's promise to Abraham that he'd make him the father of many nations, 2 Samuel 7 is massive. And if you know anything about the Bible, and it, like maybe you were reading this week in our journey readings and you came into the book of Luke and Zechariah is prophesying when he finds out he, he can start speaking again because he was you know, his ba- they named his baby. He could start speaking again. And what does he say? He talks about the God's promise to Abraham and God's promise to David. He knew that God's promise to Abraham meant that a descendant of Abraham was going to be the deliverer. And from right here in 2 Samuel 7, we know that one of David's sons, one of David's descendants is going to be the king, the deliverer, the one with who, for whom we are looking every day, watching for him. And this promise right here is so central. This is why all the time we hear of Jesus being the son of David. We're looking for David's descendants on the throne. It's all rooted right here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And that's important for us when we get to 1 Kings. So we're reading 2 Samuel 7. David's been given this great promise. Everything is absolutely wonderful. Things are still going good after chapter 8 and chapter 9. But by the time we get to chapter 11, David really messes up. If you know the story of David and Bathsheba, he's on his roof, he sees a woman bathing, he thinks she's beautiful, he has somebody bring her to him. 
her husband is actually one of his warriors who's out fighting a battle for him while he is back in his house, not out doing what he's supposed to be doing. She becomes pregnant. He tries to bring her husband home. He won't be with her because he's a righteous man. So now David decides he's going to have him killed. So now David has committed adultery and has now committed murder. Well, that baby is lost, and he brings Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and he makes her his wife, and she has a son named Solomon. Solomon is David's fourth son in the order of, of age. Well, as we finish through Second Samuel, we see that two of David's sons, his oldest two, die. One does something very wicked, and he ends up getting put to death. And another one tries to take over his throne, and he gets put to death. So we're left now at the end of 2 Samuel with David about to die. And in 1 Kings chapter 1, David is about to die. Now the oldest son that's left is a guy by the name of Adonijah. Adonijah says, I'm the oldest, and so therefore I should be king. And that's typically the way things work. The oldest is the successor. So what Adonijah does is he goes and gets a guy named Joab, who's the commander of David's army. So he's like the head general over everybody. He goes and gets a couple of the priests. And he gathers this big banquet together. And he says, I should be king. And Joab and the priests say, yes, you should be king. And they're having this massive party. And they're celebrating the fact that now Adonijah is going to be king. He's going to be the one who comes after David. Well, meanwhile... Nathan and the prophet, the same one that we read about in 2 Samuel 7, and Bathsheba get together. And David, at some point in time, unrecorded in Scripture, had made the promise that Solomon would be king. So they go and remind David of this. And while Adonijah's having his party, Nathan and the high priest and everyone goes over and they anoint Solomon as king. And when that happens, Adonijah fears for his life and everybody else splits. And Solomon is established as king. One of the interesting things is that follows the biblical pattern that we see multiple times. For example, Jacob and Esau. Esau should have been the one who received the promise, but it was Jacob. Esau was the firstborn. Jacob was the second. Everyone assumed that it would be Esau, but God chose Jacob. And we see this multiple times all throughout Scripture. The one who we would expect, God chose someone different. And so we look, and now Solomon is king. And when Solomon becomes king, what we find is he is now set up to rule in David's place. He's now there. He's taken over. And what we want to know is, what does God say to him? Well, right after this happens, David's given his last words to Solomon. And this is what he says, 1 Kings 2. This is important. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all you do wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So David, in his parting words to Solomon, he has some other things to say for him. But the first thing that he says, David's about to die. Solomon's made king. The most important thing in David's last words is he looks at Solomon and he says, love God, love his words, keep his commands. Don't turn from him from the right or to the left. Obey God. Stay with your heart steadfast on him. And then 
David dies. Solomon is king. He goes up to worship God. And after he offers sacrifices that night in a dream, God appears to him and God says, Solomon, ask me for one thing, one thing, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon says, this country is great. Everything's amazing. Who am I that I could rule this place? God, what I need from you, the one thing I ask is for wisdom, that I might know how to, how to be king and prince over all of these people. And God looks at him and he says, Solomon, you could have asked for wealth. You could have asked for long days. You could have asked for so many things, but you asked for wisdom. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you wisdom, and I'm going to give you all that other stuff too because you asked for the right thing. But then God says this, and if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So notice what happened. David, in his parting words, he tells Solomon, obey God, follow his commands, have your heart set after him. Now God has come up and he says, I'm going to give you this wisdom, but what you got to do is you got to obey my commands. You got to walk in my path. You got to do the things that I tell you to do. And then after Solomon builds the temple, he's dedicated the temple. He's got this amazing prayer to God about the temple and what it means and how the people can all turn to it and be a physical reminder of God. God appears to Solomon a second time and notice what he says. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father's walked with the integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised your father David. So now we see three times in these chapters, Solomon has been commanded, keep your eyes on my commands, obey my commands, be obedient, keep your eyes, don't turn from the right or to the left, keep solid, straight on my commands. Now, if something has happens one time in Scripture, we know it's important, but these three times really stand out to us in the life of Solomon. In addition to all of this, what we see is the glory of the kingdom, the riches of the kingdom, the wisdom of Solomon. We see times where Solomon comes and he enacts wisdom and we stand amazed that he would see and know how to do all of this. People from all over the world are coming to hear about Solomon. Riches are coming to Solomon. Why? Because God has given this gift on him. There's peace where David was a warrior extending the kingdom. Solomon was an administrator keeping it going, keeping peace. And then there's a temple that was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And we see it described in detail, the intricate hand-carved drawings, the gold-plated uh, wood, the massive cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant, the giant bronze sea that was cast bronze, with sat on all these bulls, and there's just all these beautiful details of this temple. And what we're left thinking is, man, Solomon has got to be the guy who's the fulfillment of the promise to David. He's the one we should be looking at. And what the author wants us to do in seeing all of this is to ask that question. Is Solomon the one we're supposed to be looking for? Is Solomon the fulfillment of the promise to David? Which brings us to our text. 1 Kings chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 25. 1 Kings 10, 14 through 25 says this. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of merchants and from all the kings of the West and from the governors of the land. I did some calculating this morning based on just what gold is worth today. Roughly... $935 million is what that's worth. 
roughly. That's just the stuff that was just given to him. As it says, that doesn't include beside that which came from the explorers and the business of the merchants and from the kings of the west and from the governors of the land. $935 million a year. A year. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. That is his house. He's got so much gold that he's just decorating with 500 shields of gold. Just hanging on the walls. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps, and at the back of the throne was a calf's head. On each side of the seat were armrests, with two lions standing at the armrest. With twelve lions stood there, one on each of the step of the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold, and the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was considered as nothing in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his presence. Articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules. So much year by year. We look at this and we see the magnitude of what's going on here. And we think, this is a king that surely has the favor of God on him. I mean, look at, well, look at the wealth that is there. Look at everything that is coming to him. Look at the fact that people from all over the world want to come just to be in his presence, to hear what he has to say. They're bringing him presents. All of this stuff is amazing. His throne is greater than any other throne that's ever been made. Surely this king is the one. But the author wants us to know in this magnitude of things that we would look at and think, this is amazing. He wants us to know there's a very, very, very big problem. A very big problem. And we may not catch it at first if we're not familiar with the Pentateuch. Look at verses 26 through, through 11, verse 1. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, and the king's traders received them from Kew at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidoan, and Hittite women. That's where we see what's going on. You see, everything looks good. 
and we look and we see all of this and we think, okay, well, maybe he shouldn't love those women. But really, surely, isn't this the sign that everything is great, everything is good? Well, if we look at a passage from the book of Deuteronomy, we know things are terribly wrong. The the book of Deuteronomy, if you remember, is Moses' last sermon, if you will, before the people go into the promised land. It's his last reminder of the law, his last reminder of how the people should live and follow God. It's his last parting words. And in Deuteronomy 17, he says this. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. And that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either right or left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom he and his children in Israel. Do you see and did you hear how Solomon broke every one of those commands? What was he not to do? He was not to acquire many horses for himself. He had 12,000 horsemen. He was not to go to Egypt to get horses or had the people go to Egypt to get horses. And his traders received horses from Egypt And where were his horses from? From Egypt. He's not supposed to have a lot of wives. He had 700 of them. That qualifies as many in my book. Two qualifies as many if you ask me, but 700 wives he had. And then notice at the end of that passage in Deuteronomy. He's got all of these things that he's not supposed to do, and Solomon is doing those things. But then at the end of the passage in Deuteronomy, we see that he is supposed to take and write in a book a copy of what we have as the first five books of the Old Testament. He's supposed to handwrite them. The priests are supposed to oversee it to make sure that it is right and true, and all the words are there. Nothing's left out. Nothing's added. He's to do all of that there to approve it. He's to read it and study it. Sounds very familiar to what... David and God told Solomon a total of three times that he was supposed to do. You see, the author is helping us to see David is supposed to be studying the word. He's supposed to have written this book. He's supposed to be studying it. And the right king, the one whom we're looking for, is a king who won't do certain things but will do others. And and Solomon has continually been charged, study the word, obey the word, follow the word. And what do we find right here in chapter 10? He's blatantly disobeying God's word. And we look at it under this veneer of everything is peaceful, everything is great, everything is successful. And the author in those few verses just lifts up for us the fact that underneath the surface, there's a rotting core 
that's going to cause all of it to fall apart. You see, we can be easily deceived by what's on the outside, but it's on the inside that matters. And the author wants us to know that what's in Solomon's heart is not what it needs to be. He's not the one that we are looking for. But here's the thing. Now we're left saying, well, who is the one that we're looking for? If Solomon was so great, the one we're looking for is going to be even greater. That means the one we're looking for has even more wisdom than Solomon. He will be even richer than Solomon. He will remain faithful to God's word no matter what. He'll have greater renown than Solomon. And we look at this and we're like, how could that even be so? Because you see, Solomon is a type of the one who is to come. Solomon is a type of Jesus. Or to put it another way, Jesus is the true and better Solomon. You see, Solomon had to be given wisdom by God. Jesus is wisdom. Solomon had to have riches brought to him. Jesus created all things and sustains all things by his word of his power. Solomon had people coming in worship from the kingdoms of that day. Jesus has given a name that it, at, at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess from every nation, tribe, and tongue that Jesus is supreme. And Jesus doesn't take 700 wives and has his heart turned away by them. Jesus takes one bride from every nation, tribe, and tongue, gathers people a multitude which we couldn't count. And he doesn't have his heart turned by them, but he takes his bride, those of us who've been redeemed, and he turns our hearts towards him. You see, Solomon could not handle all of this because Solomon was not the one who was promised. Did Solomon do great things? Yes. Did Solomon glorify God in some ways? Yes. But Solomon couldn't bear the weight because he's not the promised one. Jesus is the promised one. And so when we look at Solomon, we see the glory of Jesus even more. Because when we see the glory of Solomon and we realize that it falls short, we're left asking, well, then who is the one? If it's not Solomon in all of his grandeur, who is the one? And we look at Jesus and we understand how much greater he is even than Solomon. There's one other thing. This has always kind of troubled me a little bit, but this week I feel like the Lord graciously allowed it to make a little more sense to me it's the promise that god gives to david second samuel 7 and then verse 14 says i will be to him a father he shall be to me a son i was like yeah i got that but then it says this when he commits iniquity i will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the son of men and i've always looked at that i was like okay jesus feels all of that but then Jesus never sinned, so this can't be, that part of the promise must just be about somebody else, and then we come back to Jesus. And I was like, but that never made sense to me. But you know what? Jesus never committed iniquity. But Jesus was punished with the rod of men and with the stripes of mankind. You see, Jesus was punished not for his iniquity, but for ours. Solomon couldn't hold up Neither could any other king who had ever lived because they as mere men born separated from God in their sinfulness would all stray from God and have to be disciplined. 
Jesus in his perfect righteousness never strayed, never had to be told to be faithful. He is faithfulness incarnate. Never disobeyed and took our iniquity and took our sinfulness upon himself and bore that for us that we might be brought near to God. The magnitude of looking at these promises and now seeing Solomon can't fulfill this, but Jesus can. Jesus has. And so now what we're doing is we're looking not for the one who is to come in the same way that the people of the Old Testament did. We have heard of Jesus. We have seen how he fulfilled all of this. We see how the promises of God find their yes and their amen in him. But like the people, we are looking for the one who is coming. He has come, he has died, he has risen again, he has ascended to heaven, and right before he ascended, he says, I'm coming back. Now live in a way that glorifies me and eagerly awaits that anticipation. So these people were there, they were waiting, they were looking for this one who is to come, and we join with them, not in a vague understanding of what this one might be, but in knowing full well who is the one who is coming. And we wait on his coming and we long for him to come that he might fully and completely redeem us in every way. So what do we do with this then? So we see this picture. We see this picture of who Solomon is. We get this picture. We understand, okay, Jesus is the real fulfillment of all of this. How do then do I take this every day? What does this look like? There are some things that I wrote down. Maybe this will be helpful to you. This was helpful to me. First off is this. We can trust Jesus' wisdom because it's greater than even Solomon's. Solomon was so wise that people from all over the world would come just to sit and hear what he had to say. The prosperity of the kingdom, the business trading, everything that was going on there flowed out of Solomon's wisdom that God had given to him. And we look at that and we stand amazed at that. But can we tell you something? Jesus, the one who gave him that wisdom, loves you Enough that he would come to earth, take on flesh, and bear the punishment for your sins that you might be adopted into his family. That very same Jesus is wisdom incarnate. And what that means is that all of us will face time in our lives where we really don't understand why God would let something happen or where God would bring something into our life or why this didn't happen or why this timing right now, God, or or why, I just don't understand. And we will be at the point where we will be at a fork in the road and we will say, do I despair and go my own way or do I continue trusting? And it's times like this when we understand the depth of the wisdom of God and we say, God, I may not understand it, but I know that you are all wise. You are wisdom. You are the one who gives wisdom and you are wisdom itself. And so I will trust you even in the hardship even in the difficulty, even when I don't understand and can't see the end of this or know why you would bring it about, God, it drives me to trust you. You see, when we see these character traits in people, we're not just told, well, be like Solomon and be wise. We're told, trust the one who is wisdom. And so for that, I say, let us trust Jesus. Secondly is this. We must watch for subtle warning signs in our lives. You see, everything, as we said, everything on the surface looked well, right? Especially by American standards. Let's look at the measure of success that Solomon had. And from our eyes, we look at that and surely everything must be good. 
But what we find is even leading up to where we read today in 1 Kings 10, the author was dropping these subtle warning signs to us. One of the first ones was the fact that Solomon's first wife was Pharaoh's daughter. So Solomon had already gone back down to Egypt. He'd already made an alliance with Pharaoh. We see that because Pharaoh comes and wipes out a city who were people who were against Solomon and then gives the city to his daughter. And we know that, that was a, there was a treaty that was going on there. Solomon has already married, a, the first woman he married was a foreign woman to make an alliance with Pharaoh. Then we see as Solomon is building the temple, we, we stand in awe of what he's doing. Man, it takes six years to build the temple. Oh, it's big, it's amazing, it's huge. And then it starts describing Solomon's house, and it takes 11 years to build Solomon's house. And it's bigger than the temple. And it's outfitted pretty much the same way. And we see that already Solomon's heart, though he's right in doing some good stuff and building the temple, he's also spending a whole lot more time on himself. And there's these subtle warning signs that are coming up. And then we see what we read today in 1 Kings chapter 10. If we aren't careful, we will miss the warning signs in our own life when we are pursuing something other than God, when something else has become primary in our life, when we have turned to the right or to the left. We, if we're not careful, will miss those warning signs. And God, by His infinite grace and mercy, has given us His Word. He's shown us the example of people like Solomon. He's given us His command. And that Word keeps us. It helps us to stay on the path. And if we're not in there, we're not immersed in it, we will miss those warning signs. The next thing goes hand in hand with that. We have to surround ourselves with community. Now, we don't know who is around Solomon, basically because we just aren't told. One of the interesting things about Solomon is that we see David and we know who was the prophet who was around him, who were the priests who were around him, who were the commanders of his army, who were his mighty men, who were his warriors. We see all of these people around David. We're constantly told who those people are. And when you get to Solomon, after he's anointed king, you don't hear anything about the priests or the prophet. Nothing. Now, that's not to say that they weren't there. But one of the commentators says it is very interesting that after his ordination, after he is anointed, you never see any of that again. And we don't know who was around in Solomon's life, but this really is a good reminder that we need people in our life. Solomon himself wrote this, Proverbs 18.1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. And then in Proverbs 27... Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. You see, in his wisdom, whether he did it or not, we have to remember that if the warning signs are there, we oftentimes aren't going to see it. But if there are people in our life who love Jesus more than they love us and love us next, They're going to care enough about us that when our hearts have gone astray and the warning signs are there, they're going to point those out to us so that we might turn back onto the path and follow God the way that he wants us to. You see, Solomon in his wisdom knew that. There are multiple places all throughout Proverbs that talk about this. And he wants us to know, and we have to remember that if the warning signs are there, we need people in our life who can help us to see them and go the right way. Fourth thing is this. Faithful obedience is God's primary concern. 
our faithful obedience is God's primary concern. Notice in those ten chapters, three different times, he is commanded to obey the commands of the Lord. Follow God. Seek God. Pursue God. Follow his commands. Don't turn. All of these things he's continually told to do over and over again. I think it is it's very important for us to understand that the words of God to Solomon that are repeated are those words, not who should make commander of his armies, where he should do business, how we should do these things. Because out of our heart flows everything else. What did Jesus say? Out of, the, out of the abundance of the heart and the mouth speaks, it is our heart that's on the inside. And God's ultimate desire for us is that we would faithfully pursue him and be obedient. One of the passages we read in the journey this week, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Faithful obedience, seeing the gospel, understanding what Christ has done for us, and then saying, because of that, my heart wants to love you, wants to serve you, not to earn something, but to be the person you've called me to be because of who you are. That's God's concern for your life. And so maybe you've never heard that. Maybe this morning your first step is to say, I need to faithfully start following Jesus, faithfully start trusting Jesus because I've never done that. I've just tried to be a good person. I've tried to do the right thing. And Jesus is saying, no, turn your heart to me. And out of an overflow from that, you will pursue righteousness. And for some of us this morning, it's just a time to pause and say, God, I know that I'm this situation in my life, I need to trust you and trust your wisdom. I've been reminded of that this morning. So God, grant me grace to trust and walk forward in that trust, to be obedient. Maybe you just said this morning, I've just got to pour myself back into your word. God, I need people around me. Would you bring people around me? Show me how to get involved in that community. Whatever it might be, would this morning you take your heart and turn it to Jesus. Don't let it be a turned aside as Solomon was, but turn it to the one, the true and better Solomon, who offers the hope and peace of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us this picture of Solomon. Thank you for not leaving us at a small command like, be like Solomon, don't be like Solomon. But God, that you would point us to Jesus and show how he has been obedient on our behalf for our sin and our transgression that we might be reconciled to you. So, Father, use us, change us, create within us a deep trust. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. And in all ways, may we acknowledge you. We love you and ask it in his name for his glory alone.